congregation's gone. <laughs> that's great. Well, that's a healthy sign in the church, isn't it, when uh, the youthful end of it is as strong as it is here. That's brilliant. Anyway, good to be here with you this morning. I'm sorry that Ari is not here. We've been on grandparent duty this weekend, and they, they don't want their four-year-old back until lunchtime, so she's kind of guarding her safely until then and uh, attending the Belmont service online instead. But she'll be down there this afternoon later on. So we're going to have a look at the Book of Romans again this morning. And uh, is it uh, coming up on the screen again? Is it possible? Yeah. Ah, yeah. Just checking, just checking. We're in business. Good. So Romans chapter 5 is where we are this morning. And it's, there's a lot to it. We're going to look at it in sections. So I think we'll just read the first bit of it uh, right now. So Romans chapter 5 and verse 1 says this. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God, our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace wherein we now st- in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance is character and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. You see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. We'll leave the reading there for the moment, or we'll read some more verses later on just as we see how it goes. Let's remind ourselves of where we are in all of this. We're taking uh, two weeks every month this year to have a look at Romans because it is the premier epistle in the New Testament. It's the letter that Paul wrote that was probably the most important he ever did. It spells out more clearly than anything else in the New Testament and more fully than anything else in the New Testament exactly what the Christian faith is all about. And we're going through it in order. So uh, you've seen this diagram before, but we keep on going back to it just to remind ourselves of where we are. Uh, it's four sections. The first section is what we've just completed, chapter one to four. So by the end of March, we've got to the end of chapter four. And it talks about the world's problem and God's answer. The things that have been going wrong uh, in our world that's taken the world a long way away from where God wants it to be and has broken contact between God and ourselves. Then the next bit that we're just starting this morning talks about how God's answer works. God has got an answer to the problem of alienation that we face. Is there a God? Is he there or not? What does he think of me? How do I tell? God has an answer to that one. And in chapters 5 to 8, Paul unpacks how God's answer works and what it does to us. So it's pretty practical and it's exciting. This is the point at which people reading through Romans sort of come alive. Oh, wow, this is great stuff. So I hope you're going to enjoy it over the next uh, little while. Then the third bit is about, what about God's chosen people, the Jews? Where do they fit in? And we'll get to that in some of the summer months. And then through uh, the autumn, we'll be looking at 12 to 16, and that talks about how we're going to spend the rest of our lives on earth in the light of this. If this is true, what kind of people should we be? That's what chapters 12 to 16 are asking. 
So, where we are this morning is here, right at the start of 5 to 8, and we've just completed 1 to 4. Let's just remind ourselves of what was in those four chapters. We started out at the start of the year talking about how the world has lost contact with God. That uh, uh, because of the way we've behaved, we've created a world in which there is all kinds of hurt and pain. And at the moment, you just need to look at the newspapers to see how true that is, don't you? And it's because our lives are out of touch with our Creator. And uh, chapter 2 goes on to say, well, the Jews may be God's special people through whom he's going to bring this answer, but they're in the same place as everybody else. And whether you're Jewish or you're non-Jewish, it doesn't make any odds. You're still in the same boat. We're still in trouble with God. And the only way back, says chapter 3, is through faith. We can't make ourselves good enough. We can't brush ourselves up and make ourselves right for God's presence. There's only one way that we're going to be able to receive the forgiveness we need, and that's to accept it as a gift from God. And that means faith. That means believing something, believing that he's willing to do it for us, and he's able to do it for us. And uh, uh, chapter 4 talks a bit more about how that works. When we trust God, he justifies us. He makes us right again. And we talked in one of the talks about how justification works. It's a term you find if you're using a word processor on a computer these days. Remember? On the right-hand side of, of, of this uh, word you've typed here, you've got a perfect straight line. On the other side, it's a ragged end because every line contains a different number of words and letters and spaces and things like that. Hard to make it the same. And like our lives, it's just ragged. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad, sometimes it's in the middle somewhere. And we bomb about all over the place. And justification means pressing a little button in the ribbon at the top. And this button says, justify. Distribute your text evenly between the margins. Justified text gives your document clean, crisp edges so it looks more polished. So you press the button, and what happens? That edge, which is so ragged, is completely straight. Woo! As if by magic. And that's what justification means. Being made straight. Being made right. And that's what Paul says happens. If we accept God's gift by faith. We just say, God, I don't know if this is true or not, but I'm prepared to trust it and step out in faith on that basis. I claim it from you. And straight away, you're justified. You're set straight with God. And last week we talked about uh, what faith is all about. Faith means reaching out into the unknown, trusting when you can't see, taking a risk on God's reliability, committing yourself, not just believing in your head, or going into action and doing something about it. And we quoted that verse from Jesus' first miracle in John chapter 2, where his mother says to the people at the, the wedding, whatever he says to you, do it. And we said, if you want God to do a miracle in your life, that's what you've got to follow. Whatever he says to you, do it. Follow his instructions and you'll find it all works. So now Paul says, okay, chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, if this all happened to us, then what follows? In the section we're looking at this morning, in chapter 5, I think you'll find it falls into four books. First of all, he talks in some of the verses we've read about, so where are we now? What does it actually do? How does it change us? And I reckon that's verses 1 to 5. The other part of the bit that we read is 6 to 12, and he goes on there to talk about, okay, if all these good things are happening to us now, how do we actually get here in the first place? And then, uh, in, in verses 13 and 14, there's a funny little bit where he starts to say something and then changes his mind and says something else. That's one thing you have to watch when you're a preacher. You know, you can start making a point and think, oops, I'd better fill him in on this bit first. I never get back to what you were originally saying. And that's what happens. You've got a sentence that starts in 13 and 14 that Paul never actually finishes. Or hang on a minute. Do I mean 
Uh, no, 12 and 13, uh, tw uh, verse 12 is the important verse. You'll see probably in your Bible, if you've got an NIV version, there's a little line at the end of verse 12. Uh, as Paul starts off saying, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through death, and in this way death came unto all men for all its sins. And he said, uh, For before the law was given, sin was in the world. And he starts on a long explanation and never actually gets back to what he was saying originally. Still, you get the point of it because there's a last section, 15 to 21, which says there's a real contrast going on here between what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be a non-Christian. Let me show you what the contrast is. So that's what we've got in there. That's what we're going to look at in the next uh, few minutes. Let's look at those sections. First of all, then, he starts off by saying, okay, where are we now? What happens to you? When you say to God, I want this gift of faith, what happens? And he lists three things that cover past, present, and future. First of all, he says, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. The war is over. We needn't worry about God being angry with us any longer. God feeling he should punish us any longer. God feeling conflicted because he loves us so much and yet we keep on going wrong. We have peace with God. The war is over. Just as if Russia was to say this morning, okay, we're giving up, we're all going back home, sorry, oh, and we'll take the mines with us that we've been laying all over Ukraine. Peace, perfect peace is re-established. It's not going to happen in Ukraine this morning, but it can happen to us the more that we step out in faith and accept it. And this peace with God gives us something else. He says it also gives us access into God's grace. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ from whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So we gain an access as well. I remember I used to be part of uh, the committee that ran the Greenbelt uh, Arts Festival every year. It's not that big nowadays. It's still happening. Cheltenham Racecourse, um, August Bank Holiday Weekend, if you like going. But, and it's a great Christian festival in lots of ways. In the big days, when I was, when I was involved in it, you know, it was sort of 35,000 a year uh, people coming. It was a massive, massive thing to organise. And I was in charge of the evangelistic bit of the festival. So I had to run a little tent where we'd be uh, talking to people who'd come to the festival thinking, oh, they're all Christians here, what's going on? I like the music, but I know that. Why are they so excited about Jesus? My job was to tell them. <laughs> and it was great to run that tent. Now that meant... I could get into the backstage area. That was pretty good. I had a special pass around my neck all weekend, which meant I could go to the special area at the back that only the big stars went into. And uh, you, you felt a bit special being able to do that. You know, you push your way through crowds. Excuse me, excuse me, I'm VIP coming through here. <laughs> and then you go into the tent and, and be music, refreshments, people sitting around, rock stars, all sorts of people. And you think, hmm. I'm special. I'm important. Well, this verse says, when you become a Christian, you gain access into a new area, somewhere you've never been before. And you can go right through into it, and nobody's going to stop you. Off wearing my little pass. I didn't look like a rock star, even in those days. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I'd be coming through, and you'd, you'd these two big burly minders standing at the door, and mm, all right. And then you can go through, because you'd see your pass. But uh, you'd feel kind of worried. Come, are they going to let me in? Are they going to let me in? They had to, because I had access. Now, notice it doesn't say access to God. Everybody's got access to God in some shape or form. And at one point, you'll be standing before God in judgment. And, uh, you know, you will see God. But he says it's access into grace. When you get to God, what you find is grace. Grace means something that's free and un unmerited. God's favour. 
You get there and you find it's better than you expected. Yesterday, we had to do something with our four-year-old, so we decided in the end we'd take her to Pennywell Farm. I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's, it's uh, won several awards for being Devon's supreme attraction for very small people. And we thought, yep, she can go and do sorts of things, cuddle pigs, go down big slides, all sorts of things. We'll take her to Pennywell Farm. You can only buy the tickets online. You can't buy them at the gate. It's a right fiddle. You have to go online and fill in all sorts of details and then buy the stuff online. And then say, wait a minute, you can't do that. Get your mobile phone and uh, go into the app and check. I approve this transaction on your app and then come back. And buy. My goodness. It, just, it was just so, so complicated to, to get the tickets and they cost an arm and a leg as well. Whoa, dear me, I won't tell you what they cost. But anyway, we went down to Pennywell Farm in the end and uh, I was thinking, oh, boy, I don't know about this. This is, this is such a complicated procedure. And uh, when we went, went, got to the entrance desk, the woman behind the desk said, your names are not on the list. I said, no, I just booked the tickets this morning. Oh, just this morning, okay. You feel like a criminal going in there. And you know what? When we got in there, it was great. It was fantastic. There were all sorts of people who were trying to help you all over the place. Tannoy and his say, don't miss this. It starts in five minutes. There's a new activity every half hour. And it was just a fantastic, wonderful, amazing day. The staff could not have been more helpful. And you felt, you know, you were going to something that you were just grudgingly being let into. And when you got there, oh, it was so much better than you expected. Now, it's not surprising because on the way out, we uh, had to go past on the way out a little stand which had all sorts of booklets about the evidence for the resurrection and booklets about what it means to be a Christian. And even another little leaflet uh, called The Story of Pennywell Farm talks about how these people are Christians. <laughs> and if you go back to the Pennywell Farm website and you go to Pennywell uh, Farm uh, slash uh, what next, it will give you a whole page where it talks about what it means to be a Christian. But, uh, and they are Christians, and they try very, very hard to let the grace of God that they've experienced in their life spill out into the way that they deal with other people. So you get a new It's access not just to Pennywell Farm, it's access into grace. They really look after you in the most amazing way. Now, that a million times more is what happens when you become a Christian. Access into grace. You belong to something now that just fills your life with unexpected benefits. So that's the second. The third thing that Paul wants to talk about is that rejoice in hope. We know that our life doesn't end with a funeral service. It goes on into eternity. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We'll be with him one day. And so past, present, and future are all involved. We have peace with God. As you look back at your past, the things that were shameful, the things you, you, you still feel sorry about, the things that you shouldn't have done, the failures, the, the, the compromises, they are all dealt with. They're all sorted out. They're forgiven. You have peace with God. In the present, you've got access into grace and God's mercy and God's love are just there for you every second of every day. And in the future, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That's pretty good. And then he says something rather strange. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. And he says, uh, Christians will still suffer in this world because the world doesn't understand what we're about. And sometimes it'll be pretty tough. This girl... Uh, Leah Sharibo is one that we should still be praying for, but most Christians have forgotten her. Why? Because it's four years now since she was kidnapped from her secondary school in, in, in uh, Nigeria and taken into captivity by the Boko Haram rebels. She was one of a large group of girls who were taken away in, in trucks in the middle of the night into captivity. They wanted a lot of ransom money for them. 
And in the end, they agreed to let most of them go, except for one who had died and Leah Shariba. Leah was the one who staggered the thing by saying, I'm not going home again. Why? They said, you can all go home as long as you confess, uh, uh, just say the shahada and, and confess that you are Muslims. And she said, I'm not a Muslim. I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. Sorry, I can't do that. Well, you won't be able to go home if you don't. So, well, fair enough. And so at age 15, she was the one girl who stood for the faith that she believed in and wasn't allowed to go home. She's still in captivity now. We know very little about what's happening to Leah right now. We know that she's been married off to one of the most militant men. That's one thing they do with their captives. And we believe she's had two children. She's still only 19. She's living in an impossible situation. We get very few messages through from her. The last one we got a couple of years ago was a message she sent to your mum, which said this, My mother, you should not be disturbed. I know it is not easy missing me, but I want to assure you that I am fine where I am. I am confident that one day I shall see your face again. If not here, then there, at the bosom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the hope that she has, even as a 19-year-old, in captivity in Nigeria is one of the things that she's going. She's rejoicing in hope of the glory of God still. And we need to be praying for that girl. We really do. And sometimes it's only in suffering that you learn how real your hope actually is. Richard Vormbrandt, who spent 18 years in prisons in Romania and went through all sorts of incredible suffering for his faith. He's now, um, by the way, been uh, recognized by a poll of Romania as the fifth most important person in Romanian history. It's quite something. But Vormbrandt said this, whoever wishes to meet Jesus must meet him in places where brothers and sisters of Jesus are hungry, thirsty, naked, unwanted, sick, or in prison. Whoever keeps himself distant from these places remains distant from Jesus. Because it's when times are hard that you begin to realize the quality of what you've got. And Spurgeon, the great preacher of last century, says, it's got to be that way. He said, you cannot learn to swim on dry land. <laughs> In the same way, you cannot develop patience and endurance without something you have to endure and be patient about. And this is absolutely true. And God will allow suffering to come into our lives. Suffering that he hasn't planned but which he permits simply because it helps us to grow in our relationship to him and our preparation for glory. And it's the, the idea that we've been justified by faith, that we've received something that we don't deserve that keeps us going. Tim Keller says this, if you face suffering with a clear grasp of justification by grace alone, your joy in that grace will deepen. If you're conscious, it doesn't depend on you. God has just given you your forgiveness as a gift, then your grace Will deepen. On the other hand, if you face suffering with a mindset of justification by works, which means you've started to build your identity around the things you've done, the qualities you've got, then in a situation like that, you really aren't suffering because you think, why do, has God done this to me? Why is he putting me out for suffering? I don't deserve this. I've lived a good life. I've done lots of things for God. He's let me down. You see, you're basing your idea of yourself on what you've done, not what he's given you. And if you live with that mindset, the suffering, says Keller, will break you, not make you. But if you realize with a sense of wonder that everything you've got, the access into grace that you've got, comes simply from the gift of God, 
then whatever sufferings come, it will not break this sense of, 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 of the fact that God is there with you through the worst of times and he's working through everything that happens to bring about good for the people of God who are called according to his purpose. So the next few verses after verse 5 talk about how did we get here? And I think Paul says there were five things that God had to do. First of all, it had to be the right time. And he says in verse 6, You see, just at the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. The New Testament stresses this. Jesus arrived at just the right moment. In Galatians, Paul says, The Son of God was set forth when the time was right. When the time was right, God sent forth his Son, born of a virgin. And Jesus was born at the, exactly the right moment in the world's history. So everything that had been happening up to that point, everything God had been doing, the whole history of Israel, the way that God had led the country through all sorts of ups and downs, was leading to, to the moment when the situation was prepared for God's Son to come down to earth. It was just the right moment. And God planned that with care. It also had to be done for people who didn't want it. It was while we were still powerless, while we were still sinners. It had to be done for people who didn't appreciate the gift. <laughs> and so Jesus is born in a stable. Jesus lives a life of having nowhere to lay his head at night. Jesus lives a life of being plotted against and, and in the end killed by people who didn't like him. And yet he came. It had to be for people who didn't want it because they didn't realize how to get right with God. Third, it had to be done by God because we were never going to do it ourselves. When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly and God demonstrates his love for us in this. The fourth thing is it had to keep us safe forever. This is what verse 9 is talking about. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we save from God's wrath through him? It wouldn't be enough. For God simply to say, okay, I will forgive you. I'll clean you up a bit now. Go away and be a good boy or a good girl and don't do it again. We'd fall into the same mess within five minutes, wouldn't we? But if Jesus is risen from the dead and he's living to strengthen and help us today and his life can flow through us, then how much more will we be saved through his life? His life now, his risen life is you and me if we're Christians. And so we're able to live right through to the end. Yes, I to the end shall endure as sure as the earnest is given. More happy, but not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. It's as if you're in heaven already. You'll get there because God is keeping you safe forever. And the fifth condition, it had to change us radically. It had to make us different. And this is where he gets to verses 10 and 11. If when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, now that we are reconciled, says Paul, shall we be saved through his life? And not only is this, but we also rejoice in God, our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. So we're different people. We're shooting for different things. We're following a different agenda. We rejoice in God through the Lord Jesus Christ through who has brought us back into reconciliation with God once again. Then you get this funny bit that I mentioned already where he says, by the way, and he breaks into his own argument. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned, and oh, for before, yeah, the, the thing that we talked about. Let's see how that uh, fits out. He's saying some things uh, at the start of this section where he talks about Adam's failure has poisoned everything. Because Adam was put in the Garden of Eden to live a perfect life, and he didn't. He blew it. He messed up the whole situation. His failure poisoned everything. 
And as a result, death arrived. It was never supposed to be here in Corinthians, but it's here, and it's there because of Adam's uh, failure. And so now, says Paul, death passed upon all men because all have sinned. We all die. And then he suddenly thinks, somebody could make an objection here. Ah, wait a minute. Yeah, but God didn't give us the law till ages after that. It was a long time after that Moses appeared and said, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. This is what God says. This is what God wants. This is the way it's supposed to be. So what about this time when it wasn't really clear what was sin and what wasn't? Well, Paul... Paul talks about this in the next few verses and he says three things it's verse 13 before the law was given sin was in the world yep it was sinful it wasn't a perfect creation what adam messed up spoiled it for everybody and in the next generation you see cain and abel and the first murder you see all sorts of things start going wrong in the world because this sin thing has been let loose and it just controls people's lives. It creates them. Sin happened. But sin is not taken into account, says Paul, where there is no law. So God didn't judge this sin instantly. It wasn't what he wanted for his creation. But he didn't call it by its name until later on. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as Adam did, who was a pattern of the one to come. Adam has so much responsibility, says Paul, because he was supposed to be the pattern, the model human being, the one who shows us what God's son is going to be like. And in fact, he messed up the whole situation for everybody who's ever lived in the world since then. But uh, at the same, but uh, Paul says, I'm just filling in that gap. That's it. Now, let's look at what's really important. And so, in the final part of the chapter, he talks about looking at the contrast. Okay, let's read, read, read some verses then, shall we? From verse 15 onwards. But the gift is not like the trespass, says, says Paul. Adam committed a trespass. Jesus brings a gift. Now, look at the contrast. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. There is that word again. For if by the trespass of the one man's death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, he says, just as a result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. The law was added so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign in righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's a difference between being in Christ and in Adam. There's a difference this morning between being in Mariupol and being in Moldova. Picture on the left-hand side is what's happening in that city in the southeast of Ukraine right now. It's in the winter. If Putin and the Russians can get rid of the city, they have a highway straight through from the Crimea, 
which they occupied in 2014, right through to the Russian-controlled regions of Ukraine. They can join it all up and they can start a real serious Russian state on the edge of Ukraine. And so Mariupol is, is inconvenient and it's being bombed to bits. Now, if you look at Mariupol on uh, Google Street View, <laughs> you still see pictures of the old Mariupol before the bombs started to drop. Because for some reason, Google vans have not been going around the streets taking pictures in the last few weeks. And it's sad, it's haunting, because when you look around that coastline, it was a really nice city. Oh, it, not beautiful, it was a you know, industrial, naval city. But at the same time, it was a lovely, lovely place to live. And you can see that if you just look around a little bit on Google. Now, it's a bomb site. It's a mess. And 170,000 people in Mariupol, for whom we should still be praying for morning, cannot get out. And they've been trying over the last few days to establish a, cheer, a clear channel to get those people out of the city. They've got no food. They've got no water. They've got no facilities. They never know when the next shells are going to arrive. And they need to be got out. And they're not. Living in Mariupol is terrible. Living in Moldova is quite, quite different. <laughs> if you can get across the border, if you can get out, then looking at that picture, it's a lot more orderly, isn't it? This is one of Ashley's pictures from the, the uh, WhatsApp feed he's been doing of what Christians are doing on the Moldovan border to welcome Ukrainian refugees and give them some kind of hope in their lives again. And as you can see, those children are peacefully doing craft work. They're drawing pictures. Their mums are looking after them. There's no fear there that bombs are going to drop that their lives are going to end. They're out of the misery and slavery of life uh, under the attack of a, a, an alien army that they've been living in for, for, for so long. There's a difference between being in Mariupol and being in Moldova. And so, says Paul in this passage, there's a difference between being in Adam and being in Christ. If you're a Christian, you've crossed a very important border indeed. He talks about what it's like to be in Adam. In Adam, everybody dies, he says. Sin and death are what it's all about. Things that war against our soul, things that make it less than we ought to be, things that mean we have to live life without the resources we need to live a happy and satisfied and contented life. That's there. And for most people, that is the only life that they know. But there's another possibility, because in Christ, everyone is made alive. And when you come into Christ, suddenly you find it's not even just like Moldova, because the people in Moldova right now are not sure what they'll do next, not sure what the future holds, not sure what's going to happen in their lives in the future. They have a temporary resting space. In Jesus, it's not a temporary resting space. It's permanent uh, satisfaction, permanent security for the rest of your life and out the other side. And while there can still be troubles and problems in this life, as we've seen already, you go through difficulties and persecutions and all sorts of things, nonetheless, there's the hope of glory. There's the knowledge that one of these days, it's all going to be absolutely perfected. Paul speaks about this contrast in 1 Corinthians as well. That's a letter he'd written a few years before Romans, and he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. For since death came through a man, that's Adam, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. And that's Jesus. And he says, for as in Adam, all die. So in Christ, all will be made alive. And that's the difference, he says. That is what this justification by faith does for us. It takes us across the border into a completely different country. 
We're living in a world that's it's so different, so changed from what, everything that we've known from our birth until now. We're no longer desperately trying to please God and failing and compromising again and again. Instead, we're living in God's mercy, in his grace, in his forgiveness. And God is pouring his love into our lives and our hope will not disappoint us because we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit that's given us. Interesting, when Paul says that, he's using exactly the same word that's used for when the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost. Do you remember, uh, on the day of Pentecost, they were all able to do the most amazing things. They were all speaking in languages filled with glory. It was just poured out in abundance. It didn't trickle down on people. The Holy Spirit was there in abundance all over the place. And in the same way, the love of God is poured out into our hearts. So much so that there's plenty for us to live and rejoice in the love of God and there's more to overflow towards other people as well out of our lives as we bless them. And so we live in a community of love for the first time in our lives because of what's been poured out into us. And so he's drawing a contrast in this passage and there are all sorts of different sides to the contrast. In Adam, he says, lots of people died. One man one sin, one forbidden fruit, and a mess in the whole world afterwards. And millions of people have died down through history. And the reason that death has taken them is because of the sin of Adam. But Christ is the other way around. And many live because of his death. And all over the world you'll find communities of people who've been changed by the living Lord Jesus. And they will live forever. And when eventually they reach the throne of God, you'll see a multitude that no man can number. There'll be as many as the stars in the sky, as many as the grains of sand on the seashore for number. And God will bring his people triumphantly home because of the death of a man. Adam, one sin brought judgment, and the result of this was condemnation. Jesus, after many trespasses, a gift, <laughs> and the result of that was justification. And so he goes on pointing out the contrast as he's gone through the, the end of the chapter. Adam's one sin led to such disastrous results. Christ's one, uh, one death, after all the trespasses that we committed, became a gift that brought us justification. Adam's sin led to death reigning over us. But Jesus, it's completely different. Verse 17 says, if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? You might expect him to say less than that, mightn't you? Adam led, Adam's sin led to death reigning over us, but Jesus' death led to life reigning over us. No, he doesn't say that. He says we will reign in life. <laughs> we'll be champions. We'll be conquerors. We are going to reign with God, with Jesus Christ, because uh, of, of the death of Jesus, his resurrection on our behalf. Adam's death, one trespass, meant death for all. Christ's one death meant life for all. And he ends the chapter by saying, well, verse 20, the law was added so that the trespass might increase. In other words, after Adam, uh, after Moses had brought the law, it all looked worse. Because suddenly, God had revealed to his people what he wanted. And people could say, I don't match up to that one. 
missed that one. I don't match up to that one. And the law condemned us. And after the law, our sin looked much, much worse. But he goes on to say, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more because God sent Jesus. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign in righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. After the law, sin looked worse because of Adam. But also after the law, <laughs> the situation looks amazing because of Jesus. And what, when you look back on what God wants and our failure to keep it, and Jesus' perfect life and sacrificial death and triumphant resurrection, it looks more amazing, doesn't it, that we're rescued from all of that into a whole new life. And so we have to live it out. There was once a young preacher in Britain who felt quite condemned because he preached this message and he didn't feel that he had the resources to live a Christian life of the kind that he wanted. And he read passages like Philippians chapter 3 where the Apostle Paul says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. And he thought, well, I want that too. But how do I get through to the power of his resurrection? And the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3, it's not as if I've already got all of this or have been made complete. And he goes, yeah, well, I certainly feel like that. And one day he made a discovery. That when Jesus died on the cross and rose again and invited us to accept a gift through faith, he gave us in that gift of new life all the resources we need. And we can live in the power of Jesus' resurrection in a new way. That young preacher was called Ian Thomas. He's a guy who started Caperney Bible School in the north of England, 30, 35 other Bible schools across the world. And the power of the message that he preached was this. God has given you everything you need in the death and resurrection of Jesus. He said this. When you come to know Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection, you receive absolutely nothing new from God. You simply discover and begin to enjoy experientially what you received from God on the day that you were redeemed. And he says, listen, get this. The tragedy is that you can live for 10, 20, or 50 years or more having all that God can give you in Jesus Christ and yet living in self-imposed poverty. It's as if you came out of Mariupol and you got over the border to Moldova and you still lived in a basement, drinking toilet water, <laughs> not enjoying the food that people were trying to give you because it's wartime conditions and you can't be too safe and you live in terror of the next time the shelling is going to start again. That would be crazy, wouldn't it? And if, it's, if God has brought you somewhere much better than Moldova, enjoy the freedom you've got. Live in the power and the strength of it. Celebrate the resurrection in your life every day and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. This is not just for new Christians, this passage. It's for all of us to reappear day by day as we go through our lives, living in the wonder of what God has done and taking from him everything he's got to give. Let's pray together, shall we? Heavenly Father, thank you for all the things that you teach us through Romans chapter 5. We pray that none of us may miss out on them. If we're not Christians, we pray that you help us to discover the wonder of being forgiven by you and being given access by faith into real grace, undeserved mercy, unconditional love, God's total favour showered upon us through Jesus. 
and if we're there already. And help us not miss any of the blessings that you want to give us. Help us discover and begin to enjoy experientially what we received from God the day we were redeemed. Help us not to live in poverty, but to take to ourselves all the blessings of Romans chapter 5 and others that aren't mentioned there and just realize that in you we have the answer to everything. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for bringing us to yourself. Help us to live with people who are grateful, who are powerful, who are forgiven, and who are headed for heaven. We ask it for your name's sake. Amen.